Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? You don't listen to me. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths must to be, be self-evident. Careful about calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we've gone so wrong that it ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't read. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, you're not at the time. And welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. This is your captain speaking. What's up, crew? How are you? Uh, hopefully everybody's doing pretty well on this day. I'm hanging around the cabin. Been doing some pretty creative work here lately. I've been... I, I like keeping... This is experience talking. Um, I spent a lot of time in my life, adult life, I guess. Um, spinning it, staring at computers, trying to get better at doing the thing that I do. And, you know, and I think that there's value in doing those things. So it's not a, this isn't a dig against that. Um, but I found as I've gotten older and I need to do more other things, um, Part of the way that I maintain my sanity is to break up my day between things that are what I would call like academic in nature. Uh, more or I, I don't know, it's computer based. We'll just say they're not. It's because it's not necessarily always. It, a lot of times it's creative, but it's also computer based. The thing about computer based stuff. <clears throat> Which I guess we can have a we could have a conversation about how this will change as time goes on. But if you are spending a lot of time doing something, and I guess I, I guess it doesn't have to just be computer based, but you're working on something that has an like an intangible intangible um, outcome, like teaching is is sort of an intangible thing like you you work and you do the stuff and you you know you try to you know do your job 
And at the end of the day, though, there's really nothing to see. Like, you, you may have had an effect. You may have been effective. You know, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. You know, you don't, you don't ever, but the thing is, you don't really ever see it. Like, you may see tests and assignments, but that's not really, let's be honest, that's not that clear of an indication of, you know, what you did versus what your students did or did not do. And so part of that becomes, you, you develop sort of a, I don't know, there's a level of frustration that can, can occur from that kind of world. And it's not just teaching, it's, there's a lot of things out there that are like that. And, and honestly, um, you know, take, take for example, um, video games. You get really good at a video game and you play 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 and you do all these things and you make, you, you level up over and over again, you master a game or whatever it happens to be. But in reality, at the end of it all, like nothing in life has changed. Like your, your actual reality has not been altered. You may feel a sense of accomplishment, but there's nothing that you can stand back and see besides a, a score on a screen that can just as easily be turned off. And... You know, so how do you balance those things? Uh, for me, it's always been a matter of balancing um, work with my mind uh, combined with work with my hands. So I, I like making things and creating things. So I do a lot of woodworking and and I learned taught myself how to sew last year. So I've been, you know, sewing things and making things and. It's pretty handy for the you know sailboat because you know knowing how to repair canvas is really important. And you know recently I've been getting into leather working and so learning how that works is has also been interesting. And so at the, but at the end of the day, there's a thing that you created and it's sitting on the table in front of you and, and it's like and there it is. That's the thing. Um, and that's kind of cool. I don't know how to say it's you know that cool or not that cool but i just think it's that cool um what are you working on out there what kind of things have you been doing i'm googling something real quick so you can hear my keyboard there's a um person i'm talking to today her name's alice driver and um she is a writer she's a journalist and she's done a lot of cool things um, and you know the, she was raised in a few places but she has Arkansas roots and her parents still live in Arkansas in a small Ozark community and we're going to talk about that and um, But one of the things that we end up talking about, I guess, and I'm just kind of rolling on to the idea of frustrations or, or um, whatnot, there's a weight that comes with being a writer. And becoming and being a writer <clears throat> and being a journalist these days is specific. Writing nonfiction, long reads, 
um, you know, in the world. And if you've been listening to these, when I've talked to other journalists, you've 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 heard me talk about you know, there's not an absence of good news and good journalism in the world today. It's what it mostly is is a lot of the good stuff is getting it gets crowded by the the I don't want to call it bad stuff. Well, we'll just call it bad stuff. It's not you know the low quality stuff tends to hide the um, higher quality stuff. Alice writes the high quality stuff, and um, but it's a tough road. Uh, being a writer these days is a tough road. Um, being working in the creative world is a tough road because you know there's there are frustrations because you can work hours and hours and days and weeks um, and I've done it you, you you drive you know you may end up driving hundreds of miles you end up camping out in a cheap motel for several days you talk to lots of people you you know you interview you get hours and hours and hours of interviews and then you finally write something and it's you've done your due diligence and then you know then sometimes it's hard to even get that published and then sometimes you know even if you do get it published what people are willing to pay is not that great um not that great at all and um but you still do it I don't know I don't want to say writing writing can be a sickness uh, writing can be you know for the creative types there's you know you can try to suppress it um, but the fact is you're just not happy unless you're doing it like no matter you know you don't you sort of don't you want to pay attention to the economic side of things but it's frustrating you know, when you can be, you know, a serious, you know, writer and you're, you know, you're struggling to pay the rent and then you just see, you know, this world of, you know, Instagram celebrities and TikTok celebrities and whatever, and they're making a killing and they're essentially producing garbage. It may be entertaining, but it's still just garbage. And that can be frustrating. Um... But, you know, comparison is the death of happiness. So there's a point that a lot of us just kind of, I don't want to say we check out, but we stop caring so much about what other people are doing. Like you could, you can dwell all day on how life's not fair. Or you can just go out and do the thing. You know, it's sometimes, it seems at times that long form journalism, long form journalism is, is a lot like, um, you know, it's moving into the world of being an artist. You know, you just you just do it because you're compelled to do it. And uh, so that's what it is. So that's what we do. And we talk about that kind of stuff. Um, there's a book by Jack London called Martin Eden. And it's a little different than a lot of uh, London stuff, but it's about a sailor who's, who's largely uneducated, 
who meets a woman who is, I guess, high society, and she introduces him to her world, and he becomes completely enamored with her and the world that she lives in, and but realizes that him in his current state would never be able to have a life like she has or a woman like her. And so he dedicates himself to um, learning how to write and to, to educate himself and to be everything that he thinks she could want. And he does it. And he does it. Um, but with that education becomes an enlightenment on his part. And then he sees things that are... Things aren't what he thought they would be. Here's a quote from it. But he knew life its foulness as well as its fairness, its greatness in spite of the slime that infested it, and by God he was going to have his say on it to the world. Saints in heaven, how could they be anything but fair and pure? No praise to them. But saints in slime, ah, that was the everlasting wonder. That was what made life worthwhile. To see moral grandeur rising out of the cesspools of inequity, to rise himself, and first glimpse beauty, faint and far, through mud, dripping eyes to see out of weakness and frailty and viciousness, and all the abysmal brutishness, arising strength and truth, and high spiritual endowment. We're more than our status. And sometimes... You know, there there are those in this world that are simply the only thing they care about is is building a bank account, and there are others. There are wonderful others who the thing that they want more than anything isn't so much a bank account, though. You know, that'd be nice. The thing they want most is to build a life. So let's talk about that right after my buddy Rob sings you a song. Yeah. 
the little children grow Grow up from ashes and from dirt Up they come from beneath the waves Katrina's flooded earth Out of harshest diversity All like phoenixes they burn Flooding in for all the world to see Teaching us what we have yet to learn See how they grow, see how they climb See how they leave their little world behind Out of darkest earth and into the light See how they grow, watch how they how are you hey billy how's it going doing well um so you're somebody i've been keeping up with for a while now uh and i've been reading the stuff you've been doing and we've been kind of not on parallel paths uh but we've been covering similar subjects in the 
past couple of years. And so that's made me extra interested. Uh, so that being said, what are you working on these days? Well, right now, right before I called you, I'm, um, I'm editing a podcast, which I produced in Arkansas, actually in OARC about climate change. Uh, I, um, brought together a, and this was not easy. This might be the hardest thing I've ever done. During the pandemic, I brought together a climate change denier and a climate change believer to have a discussion in person. Oh, wow. Okay. How did that go? Just yeah, just give me the, the real quick. What made it the hardest thing you've ever done? Uh, I mean, first of all, during the pandemic, does it, the pandemic just makes an extra layer of difficulty of getting people together or getting people to do things in person because you are dealing with social distancing and with um, different beliefs about coronavirus and, and things are, everything is, is polemical right now because of the political environment that we're in. So for example, the person who I interviewed who he believes in climate change, but he doesn't believe that it's man-made is uh, my parents' neighbor, who's a state senator, okay. and uh, I had to get him together with someone I, who believed in climate change, and several people refused to talk to him. They said, he's a corrupt, and I'm not going to speak to him. I'm not going to drive to his house. I'm not going to, I can't do it. They weren't, they weren't going to talk to the senator? And, the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and then the other thing is, you know, if you know where OARC is, it's far from everything. So, you know, I'm asking people to drive, what, two hours to talk to someone they don't like, don't agree with, you know, don't want to see. Right. And so anyway, I did it and now I'm working on it. <laughs> Good job with that. Let's let's talk a little bit about OARC since um, we were just talking before I hit the record button. Um you had to go back to Mexico so we could actually record this conversation, which I, I, I told you, I think is hilarious. Um, you know, I, I'm out in the cabin. Literally, I measure, other than my parents who live on the other side of the farm, I measure my, my neighbors in miles out here. Um, but from here, I used to drive to OARC a lot, and we would camp up there on, uh, like, um, White Rock. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, um, anyway, it was just, I, I always loved that area. But you have to know where, at least in those days, you had to know where OARC was to go there. So what was it like growing up in a place like that? Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful place to grow up. It's, it's, I mean, my whole childhood is, I've realized that I don't, I don't know even the, any other places in the state of Arkansas because my whole childhood was basically like this you know, my parents' property plus the Ozark National Forest, um, you know, rivers, you know, it's beautiful swimming. Um, and I spent most of my time outdoors. It's a good childhood. Once you get older, it's a little bit complicated because there's no work. There's a lot of drug mm -hmm. and alcohol issues. Um, and... So, yeah, it's a good place to be a kid, I would say. <laughs> no, and I was I was thinking about that. I was reading um I was reading your Oxford American uh piece the other day and uh 
I decided you and I had very different childhoods. We we both grew up sure. in rural Arkansas, you know, not too far away from each other. You know, I was in the Washtenaw Mountains, you're in the Ozarks, but you know, I grew up on farm life where every free moment was I was on a tractor or doing, you know, working cows or something. Um, you had, you know, fam- your parents are artists um, or your dad's a potter, your mom's uh, a weaver. What was that like? Because um, I and, and I, what I'm leading up to is a question is when you left to go to college, you just didn't go to the local, you know, local college. So there was something that set you up to take off, to go, you know, somewhere more, and I don't say more interesting, but different. Well, both of my parents, I mean, they, they were part of the back to land movement, which is a movement in the seventies to kind of exit consumerist culture, grow your own food, food, um, really have a connection with the land, but thinking about sustainability, about climate change, um, And before they bought land in Arkansas, they both had traveled in Latin America. They spoke some Spanish. They're both, both of them, their art is very much influenced by Latin America, like Latin American artistic traditions. Um, And so even though by the time they bought land and decided to be artists, they, they didn't have money. We didn't, we didn't travel when I was little, when I was growing up. Um, but they had lots of books and lots of memories and stories that they shared with me of travel. Um, and, and so even though, you know, from the time I was born till the time I was 16, I never left the United States. I, we didn't travel very much at all. We really, I mean, part of, you know, my parents made that choice to, to make art, which meant that they didn't have a lot of extra income. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was definitely, I mean, my grandparents were painters and traveled all over. They traveled, they lived in Mexico. They, you know, did projects in Morocco. They, they really traveled and wrote me letters. And so I very much had a connection and I loved, um, you know, stamps and different countries. And I just was, um, always reading books about traveling, things like that. So uh, even though I didn't go anywhere during those years, mm-hmm. I traveled, you know, through stories. Right. And I guess ours was, mine was similar. I think the furthest we ever went was Branson, you know, for a three-day, you know, vacation. Because ours wasn't art, it was cows, and you couldn't leave the cows alone. Um. But that being said, I always, I always had this thing where I was always looking over the horizon and just going, what's over there. I just, I want to know what's over there. So pretty much when I turned 18, I decided it was time to go see the world and start exploring a little bit. Was it something like that with you? Um, Cause you went to school in Kentucky, correct? Or college? Yeah. So, uh, so until I was 14, we lived in Arkansas, mm-hmm. um, but my parents, um, we didn't have health insurance. This is a very United States type of story. So until I was 14, you know, nobody in my family had health insurance. My parents, I think, began to worry a little bit as my brother and I got into our teen years, not only about health insurance, but about having a more regular income and um, 
you know, what my, what kind of education my brother and I were going to get because the school system in Newark is not very good. So my dad applied for and got a job teaching ceramics in Kentucky. And we moved when I was 14. Um, and then he got funding when I was 16, he got funding to take students, art students to Costa Rica. And he took me with him. And that's a key. I mean, that changed my life. I just, I had never heard really heard anybody speak another language. Not, I mean, it, it never dawned on me what it meant to speak another language, to be surrounded by people who speak another language. And I think that's a pretty rural Arkansas. I mean, I just didn't have exposure to that. And that's actually something I kind of want to get, get to, cause you're, you're actually living in this conversation. You're in Mexico city, correct? Okay. So uh, no, I'm in, I'm in Mexico, but I'm in San Miguel de Allende. Okay. Um, a lot of what I've discovered is people, at least from the United States don't understand Mexico at all. Um, they either understand Cozumel or they think they understand the border. Uh, but anything inside of those borders, they don't really get. So what is it about, what do people not understand about Mexico or, or at least what is it that you like about that area that kind of draws you down there? Well, I love, I fell in love. I mean, I fell in love with the language and I wanted to learn it and I learned it and I speak it fluently. It took me, you know, I studied it in college. Um, and I think part of, you know, any culture that you really respect, if you're going to work or live there, you need to speak the language. And unfortunately, it's bizarre to me that people in the U.S. are extremely opposed to learning any other languages. It's like they're idiots and they want to be idiots. And it, I find it, it makes me ashamed of the United States because we could easily speak two or three languages. Let's just say English and Spanish definitively because it's extremely useful and it's our closest neighbor and it's not even hard to learn Spanish. But it's like we prefer to remain in ignorance because we're lazy, because we're racist. Um, a lot of issues that have come up in this, you know, in this current uh, Trumpian time. And, um, and so, you know, Mexico is uh, diverse, beautiful, has amazing food cultural traditions. It's just, I don't, I, there's just a weird and racist uh, viewpoint that pervades the United States that, you know, that Mexico and Mexicans are inferior in some way. So what is it that you like about it though? I mean, specifically what drew you there? I mean, you could have gone, you could have gone to Spain. I mean, if you were, you know, you could have gone other Spanish speaking countries or islands, but Mexico is where you went. Yeah, well, I've, I studied in Mexico when I was in college, um, and and I fell in love. I, I did. I fell in love with the, I mean, the, the food in Mexico is very specific among countries in Latin America because Mexico um, has, is one of the countries that has, in terms of indigenous groups, the most diversity, and that has had a real influence on the food, on the, on the um, kind of the daily reality of the country. And, um, and I love, uh, I love to eat. So anyway, uh, food is one of the things that, that I love about, about okay. Mexico and I find, uh, amazing, but you know, the families that I've lived with and I just felt very connected and like at home, um, 
here with the people that I met. Who has the best churros down there? Uh, I don't know because, I mean, churros are originally from Spain and I don't actually love them here uh, in Mexico. I don't, okay. uh, you know, they have them, but it's, that's actually not one of the things I love here. Okay. What, what's your favorite food? I'm just going to go ahead and pick in here and. Uh, I mean, my favorite street food is probably elote, which is like, which is the boiled corn on the cob and they cover it with mayonnaise and, uh, you know, um, uh, like salsa, like, uh, it can be lime and spices. Mm -hmm. It sounds really no, weird to people who haven't been here, but no, I love it. There's a, uh, so, I mean, so I, I spent half my life in Corpus Christi, which is, you know, it's about two hours from the border, but it's, you know, 90% Hispanic, but yeah, we've got, uh, there's food trucks that sell, you know, some street food, you know, on the seawall right by my boat. So yeah, it's really easy just to go and yes, street corn, um, and I never experienced those until I went to Matamoros and I was with somebody else and you're like, yeah, you need to get this. And then, then your immediate thought is, where has this been all my life? We've, you know, we've grown corn my entire life in the garden, but I've never had this. So now I, I get that. So, um, let's turn a little bit more to what you're actually, your project that you're working on. So you, for a while now, and you, you were doing some stuff in Arkansas, but you're actually, um, I don't know what you can or can't tell or should tell or what, what are you doing these days that you can talk about? Uh, so I'm, I am, I got funding from national geographic to do, they had a grant for projects about coronavirus and, um, I'm interviewing, uh, poultry processing workers in Arkansas whose family members have died of coronavirus that they contracted at, you know, at work. Um, it's also extremely complicated because, I mean, anybody who's in Arkansas probably knows this poultry processing companies are extremely powerful. They will fire, harass, intimidate any worker who speaks to the media. Um, and, 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 and now with the pandemic, you know, workers obviously don't, they can't afford to lose their jobs right now. They're afraid to speak to journalists. The only reason they're speaking to me is because people died because, mm. uh, you know, basically because companies would rather um, have increased profits than, you know, take a few basic steps to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And I think that's one of the things I don't hear reported a lot locally, exactly what's going on. Like the last time I heard about, apart from, from you, um, you know, we're talking about meatpacking plants and, you know, in like South Dakota, but Arkansas, can you sort of paint us a picture of what, what's the reality right now? Uh, so if you like, I mean, in my interviews, here's what I'm hearing and this, I'm interviewing workers in different parts of the state at different facilities who are from different ethnic groups. I mean, they're all immigrants. That's who's processing your meat. Um, and the main thing is that when workers test positive for coronavirus, the companies, companies right now are shorthanded on labor because one, because they're the, one of the main centers of the outbreak of coronavirus in the U.S. aside from prisons is meat processing plants. Mm -hmm. So people are afraid to work there. 
So when people test positive for coronavirus, the companies are often telling them, if you are not on your deathbed, if you are not in the hospital, you are coming back to work or else we're going to fire you. So people who are coronavirus positive, who are not, you know, sick or in the hospital, like, are required to return to work where they then spread coronavirus because when you work in a processing plant, you're working very close to other people. Right. They then spread that coronavirus and then it becomes an outbreak. And then the plants also aren't informing workers who has tested positive for coronavirus. If you test positive, they tell you, but they don't tell, you know, they don't tell other workers. So it's this situation where you're pretty much working with people who are COVID positive, but you don't know who they are. And, and then the people who are COVID positive, they don't want to work. They want to quarantine, but they can't afford to lose their job because a lot of like, I've interviewed, you know, people who have, you know, six kids at home or, and, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm in interviews where I realize that every person in the room has had coronavirus, except for me, that they got from the origination of that coronavirus was from chicken processing plant um and then and then you have the people who've died whose families now have 50 60 70k in metal medical bills mm-hmm. and who's who's going to pay for that is is a processing plant going to help with that no yeah I, i've seen this or at least heard a little bit of details because my brother actually works for the usda um so he's been one of the inspectors going into these plants because and um the other thing a lot of people don't know about is the inspectors when the USDA are largely understaffed these days. And so he's actually, he's supposed to be a supervisor, not doing that kind of thing anymore, but he, um, they're so short staffed that he's been having to go to a lot of these plants around the country doing the same kind of thing, you know, and a guy like him, he travels um, all over the country. So I'm not saying that he's spreading it, but you know, that he's created, he's in a situation where he has to fly into a plant, spend a few days there, fly somewhere else, you know, and so, and then go to another plant and, you know, the cycle continues. So yeah, I've worried about him, um, for that same reason, just because he has to go into that, that environment. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, and the, and the thing is that, you know, I have to, I have to present all of the, I have to present everything I've found to the the companies themselves so that they can respond Mm -hmm. and they, they deny everything. But what workers say, the other thing that the companies are doing is blaming the workers. The companies are saying, you workers are having fiestas. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a racism-oriented critique telling the workers that they're having parties mm-hmm. because a lot of the workers are Spanish. And that's where the coronavirus is coming from, not from the chicken plants, which is unbelievable because the, the data on the spread of COVID in chicken plants it's coming from the chicken plants, you know, the processing, because they're making workers work when they have COVID, not because workers are having parties, which, you know, it's it's just incredibly irresponsible and racist to blame the workers for something that, that they've clearly been killing workers and they don't care. So let's talk about something from a, a journalistic standpoint of you being a journalist coming into these these environments um you're you're not you're not unfamiliar with work working in um 
kind of tough environments, you know, the, with the content or the, the emotional level is, is it can be rough at times because of the stuff you get in contact with. And you and I have talked in the past a little bit about the sort of emotional fatigue that journalists get because you're, you're constantly dealing with people going through some level of tragedy or you see some sort of injustice and you're writing about it, but you can't necessarily really feel like you're doing anything about it. How are, are you feeling that way or in, how do you cope with it? Uh, um, I am, I am the pandemic particularly has been really hard, I think, for everyone. But as a journalist, it's been very hard for me. It makes everything more difficult. I mean, you have an added extra layer of, you know, I'm working with people who've had COVID, who might have COVID, or who family members have died of COVID. And, you know, I'm trying to do social distancing. I'm also trying to do interviews in person and coordinating all that. And sometimes I need a translator because some of the workers speak other languages uh, aside from Spanish and English. And it's really hard to do that. And people are afraid. So people will talk to me and then they get afraid and they don't want to talk to me anymore. Um, and um, so it's just, it's really hard to work. And it's, I think the thing that, is hardest for me is that people want to talk because they, you know, they don't think that their family members should have died just because, you know, poultry processors need workers are shorthanded on workers and need, ha need to have COVID positive workers at work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's a really basic, you know, I think you could tell anyone that, that's a basic point. Don't have people who just tested positive for COVID at work. Um, but chicken poultry processing companies are denying it completely, harassing, threatening, intimidating workers. And that's what, I mean, if I, if I don't manage to tell this story, it's going to be because the, the poultry processing companies are going after workers who speak to the media. Have they said anything to you specifically? No, I mean, they know I'm working on the story because I do. I mean, my journalistic responsibility is to get a response from the company. So mm -hmm. they know when I'm working on a story because I'll say, here's the points I need you to respond to this, this, this. In general, they send a response that denies everything and says, we never have workers work. When they have COVID, we pay them. Um, and, you know, the, the chicken processing companies are really smart. They, they're doing the Kafka thing, which is, you know, they are using bureaucratic, uh, difficult bureaucratic methods to ensure that workers don't actually ever access the things that they theoretically, that they say that they're providing. Like they told me, we're paying workers who have COVID 90% of their pay while they're at home in quarantine. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to workers, what do workers say? I tested positive for COVID. And then the, the pay, the 90% pay for COVID is routed through a different company, not the processing company, but some other CIS payment system. In order to access it, you have to do an in-person interview telling your story about how you got COVID. It's like, oh, once you get COVID, you're going to go do an interview about how you got COVID. And then you have to do like a written uh, a written test. And if, you, if your spoken story and your written story don't match up, they deny you the pay. Okay. 
And then add, add to that that most of these workers aren't native speakers of English, and all of this is in English. It's just a bizarre, it's like you have COVID and you're supposed to go to this, you know, separate payment system and tell your story, but not in your language. And it, so it's like theoretically things are available, but in reality they aren't. This, this sounds distinctly similar to the border. Like, um, we have all these rules that are official, but the practicality of going through them is something else entirely. And the moment you, like the thing that I figured out on the border, you know, the argument always is, as far as immigrants, we don't care if they come as long as they come legally, right? That's, that's, that's the line you always hear. And then you say, okay, all right, well, they did show up, you know, based on the rules that were in place, they did, you know, what they were supposed to do. But then you move the door, and then then they had to walk over, and so then they moved the then they walked to that door to stand in that line, and then you moved it again, and like there's this this it seems like this never ending pace of let's change the rules, you know, to to obfuscate the you know obfuscate it so badly that almost no reasonable person can get through this thing, um, you know, because then we can stand on the argument that you know they came illegally. Um, you know, because eventually within the processing plan around the border, you know, you, you push people to a point of desperation and then ultimately desperate people do desperate things. And so this is where you get. And so, but even with the uh, processing plants, I can, you know, and, and I'm generalizing here, but uh, Dardanelle, which is right next to, you know, where the university is, you know, Yale County had a huge outbreak over the summer, um, you know, and there just happens to be a processing plant in the middle of that town. And that outbreak, you know, took the life of uh, the mother of one of my my former students, and you know, and she was the she was the wife of the county judge, and you know, she wasn't working there, but it certainly, you know, that outbreak claimed her as well. Um, and so these things aren't harmless, I guess, is the thing I'm trying to get around to saying. And I don't, and I don't really know. It's I, I don't envy your position trying to tell these stories. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for me is always that I want to do justice to the people who are, you know, who are risking a lot to talk to me. And that's a big weight. And especially when I know that the people who speak to me and myself are up against some of the most powerful transnational corporations in the world. And, uh, and they're going to squash anything that, that they really can Okay, let's move. Uh, let's move to something else that you've been doing. So uh, th that's the project you've been working on right now. But there's something else uh, you wrote for uh, an article for the Guardian. You've been writing letters lately, and this is this is kind of what I, I really one of the things I really admire about you and the things you've been doing um, is you you have historically tried to lift up other journalists. Um, especially young women. Um, when I was down in Matamoros, uh, actually backtrack, you posted a video once of a, uh, young woman, Veronica Gabriella. Uh, she did a te TEDx talk and I remember watching that. And then I ended up sending that video to one of my students who's a photographer or former students who's a photographer. And, uh, 
fast forward a few months, I'm down in Matamoros again. And I'm, I just, I ended up meeting another film crew down there and we all went out to lunch and there was this young photographer there and, I, and she was their fixer. And I, and I just kept looking, I was like, I know her. <laughs> and it turned out to be Veronica. And then, uh, we ended up having a fantastic conversation and I never would have known who she was if you hadn't have highlighted her. Um, and then, and then you've, and then again, one of my other students, I told you this, walked into my office a couple of weeks ago because she'd gotten a letter from you. Um, what are you doing with those letters? Tell me, tell me about what, what it is you're doing and why. Uh, well, I mean, during the pandemic, especially I've been feeling for various reasons. I mean, in terms of politics in the U S in terms of the way coronavirus has been treated in terms of the way journalists are treated, um, you know, the way that the president of the United States talks about journalists, you know, says that we're enemies and we're fake news that affects the way that people treat me, you know? And, um, I'm just, I just started to feel like really kind of hopeless. And I wanted to connect with people one-to-one, -one. you know, not, uh, not even about a specific issue, but, um, I used to write letters all the time when I was younger and I love handwriting and stamps and just to do something that, you know, reminded me of human connection because also because I really think that, that social media has played a large role in, in creating not just, you know, this, uh, what's happening with president Trump, the United States where, um, you know, he doesn't want to respect the outcome of the elections, you know, essentially a bid for, um, tyranny, I, I just feel like social media has created an environment where we don't actually connect at all and people are really nasty to each other. And I, I'm, I've kind of, I've quit using Twitter and Facebook and I just started, I basically quit using Twitter and Facebook and started writing letters to friends. And I said, I have a newsletter and I said, anybody who wants a letter, I'll write you. Um, and you know, I don't know what it does, but it helps me, it helps me feel like remind myself of what's important, uh, which is, I think it's gotten all kind of out of, you know, n not like, oh, what's important? You have, you know, 100,000 Twitter followers. You can buy Twitter followers. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm -hmm. it's like we've gotten into this weird space. We've gotten into this really weird space where um, what's important, I think we've kind of forgotten it. Yeah, I have, I deleted all the social media apps off my phone, uh, except for just the messenger apps. And it, because I, I just, and, and I worked in social media for years, um, before I started teaching and this is, and I sort of hit that point of, okay, this is no longer a positive aspect of my life anymore. I like, I get, like, I have a need for it, or at least a, a perceived need because this is how I reach people. Um, so I didn't delete the account. So I just, I just sort of made a conscious decision that I was only going to do this, you know, via a desktop at this point on. So now if I, you know, if I take a photo and I want to post it on Facebook, I legitimately have to, you know, airdrop it to my computer and then upload it, which, you know, cuts down a lot of the goofy food photos that I would, you know, throw up before. But 
I just noticed a couple, I was just sort of continually getting worn down, uh, mentally getting worn down. And it's, you know, you get to, you sort of hit that point of why am I even bothering anymore? Um, and I really hit a point where do I really want to teach other people to do this anymore? Um, you know, why in the world would I want to subject someone else to this kind of beating? You know, especially mm-hmm. it's not like you're getting rich doing it either. You know, basically you're just asking for po- poverty and punishment. Um, and then, yeah, but at the same time, there's a thing, if you're a writer, you're a writer and you know, and you need to tell stories, then you need to tell stories. Um, but no, when you started pushing those out, I, th- I don't know, I think it's, I think it was, ad- it's admirable. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a nice touch of humanity in a world that desperately needed it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about social media is I'm not, I've, I've used it my whole career. I'm not against it, but I've, I mean, the main thing is that Twitter and Facebook are run by unethical egomaniacs who don't care about facts or the truth and what sells and what makes them money is outrage, you know, and, uh, and that, that has made media bow down and serve up outrage. And I see it. I get pressure from editors. I get pressure from outlets. They want the most outrageous, most sad, most terrible story you could ever read. Mm-hmm. And I understand, I mean, they want that because they know that's what's going to gain traction on social media, which is where you get clicks and likes. And I'm tired of that system. It's a system that doesn't care about nuance. And, um, and I don't, you know, and maybe, maybe I'm done with the media because I don't want to be producing that kind of work. Um, and I always think Tanessi Coates one time said he, he, he's not on Twitter and he said something like you have to care for what you're taking in, like what you're taking in, what are you letting in, in terms of news and information? And I think that's true because I, you know, when I'm letting in all of Twitter and all of Facebook, I become dysfunctional because I'm really upset and enraged. And I mean, it's, it's just not. It's not useful. So what kind of stuff do you want to write? Like if you could, if you could rewrite the world of media right now, because, you know, this is a question we all deal with where the, you know, people will say there's no good journalism and I know good and well, there's good journalism um, and there's good journalists um, and you're one of them. So what would you, what would you change and or what would you write given the opportunity? Um. I mean, right now I'm actually considering writing fiction because I'm a little bit tired of, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm feeling burnout. I don't even know if I'm a fiction writer, um, but I feel like I'm kind of burnout on uh, on trying to deal with, um, trying to freelance in this media environment. Um, I mean, I do have a few editors who been really supportive i mean of the kind of work that i like to do um and so but i just feel like every year it's fewer and fewer um fewer and fewer people and um and like i'm just never gonna fit in you know to what you know what the you know what what people want and i don't want to produce what people want you know what i'm saying i don't think it's important I don't think you should produce what people want. I think you, it's important to produce people, things people never even knew they needed to read. 
Right. Right. I had a, a revelation a few months back about, you know, you think of the great writers in history and, you know, the great journalists, the, the people who made you think. Um, I just try to imagine somebody telling them that they needed a right to match an algorithm. And it's just insulting to consider. And so I thought, well, if they don't have to, why should I? And so at that point, it's just, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And if it works, then it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I'm satisfied with my own efforts. Um, there's going to be, I'm going to show this with my students. And then, you know, you talked, I've got some graduate students um, who want to talk to you as well at some point. What advice would you give a young journalist? Somebody's getting out of college and they're looking to start you know, either as a writer or a photographer or whatever it is. Like, what is it that you, what is it that you know now that you think would help them? I always tell, um, I always tell people that they should learn languages. I mean, especially a lot of people approach me because they want to do international work or international stories. Um, and they, uh, you know, and I'm, I really believe in learning at least one other language, regardless of what you're doing. Um, the hardest part is the financial part of journalism. You have to be really honest about, about your family's financial circumstances. Do like, because there really is no money in journalism. Uh, it's, it's really floated by, um, you know, mostly by people with trust funds or with other ways of making money. And so, you know, you've got to be willing to live on probably not very much money. And you've also got to be willing to say, if I can't pay my rent, could someone in my family pay my rent? You know, you need that level of honesty. And if the answer is no, no one in my family is going to pay my rent, then what do you do? Because even when I am making money, people aren't paying me. So there's been plenty of times when I'm like, oh, I can't pay my rent. And it's not because I don't have the money. It's because nobody's paid me. Right. And so then I have to ask, like, my parents or my, you know, whoever, could you lend me this money and then I'll pay you back? And then I promise. And you know, and that's a privilege that I have that I could, I could ask my parents, you know what I'm saying? But, and that's why journalism, I really don't like journalism today because it isn't open to people from, you know, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. It's really difficult entry, financially speaking. No, And that's what I, I would like to see change. I see, I see journalists going down this path of it's, like historically writers and other artists have gone, you know, it used to be like, if you were a, a novelist, you, a lot of times your side job to pay the bills was being, you know, working for the local paper because it paid the bills and it wasn't, you know, it taught you how to write and it gave you, you know, you could use that skill. There was a paycheck at the end of the week and, you know, it may not have been much, but it was enough. Um, and now really we're moving more toward in many cases, um, just what you're talking about. It's, you know, even when you do get paid, you have to wait for it. And sometimes that gets, you know, drug out longer than you want. Um, and so people are taking side jobs just to feed their, you know, writing addiction. Um, you know, just to be able to do that. It's, bec it's become, it's become a hobby. And that's what I think, 
you know, and that's what I think people want to admit. And so what I always tell people, like, I have other skills. I do translation. I do editing. I, I mean, a lot of, because I'm bilingual, I have a lot of work that I do, like subtitles for videos or movies. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't depend 100% on writing because I know that I can't de- depend on it. I know that that alone financially is not going to support me as someone who doesn't have family money, who doesn't have a trust fund, who, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so I have other things that I do. And I always tell people to be realistic about that. If you're, you know, if you don't have something to fall back on, you need to be realistic about what skills you have and what else you can do to fill in the gaps. What, what are the, we're, we're kind of on this, but the economics of writing, um, what do you think I'm trying to think of the best way to talk about this? Um, because we're already on it. I'm just trying to think how does someone, what's the best way someone can structure their career from the beginning? Do they just go get a job at, you know, waiting tables and then, or do they just try to dive in? Is there, a, is there a point that you just fully commit to it and just say, I'm going to do, you know, do or die, or is it smarter just to kind of ease yourself in? I mean, the, the, the assured way to do it is the money way, which is how it always is, which is go to Columbia journalism school, mm-hmm. spend, I think it's $80,000 $80, a year mm-hmm. for your master's or whatever it is, you know, and that's the assured way because you're in New York or, you know, it could be Columbia journalism, make it an Ivy league school. That's, I mean, if you look at the hiring tendencies of news organizations in the U S and there's, you know, online, there's plenty of research. They tend to hire from Ivy league schools, right? Um, that's the majority of their hires. And so that's like, if, if you can afford that, go, go the money way. People respect money, show up with money or be with money and do that. And that's, and you know, I couldn't do that and I didn't do that. And I don't think everybody should have to do that, but that's one way that's more sure because you're in New York or whatever, San Francisco, you've got connections, you've got famous teachers and whatever. I mean, the other way to do it is just like you always wanted to write and you try to figure out how to do it, which is what I did. And, you know, I did the weird thing of getting a PhD because it gave me time to write and they, you know, I I had a a fellowship. Um, So it was like I had a little bit of money and I had time to write. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's, you know, that's not, uh, you know, that's a harder path because it's, does anyone care that I went, you know, got a PhD from the university of Kentucky? No. You know, does, it's like, it's not, uh, you know, it's not the most desired path, but I think we need, you know, diversity in journalism that, isn't there. And I think it would come from people who, you know, dropped out of school, who are from rural places, who are, you know, who don't have that, their story isn't just, I went to Princeton and then I went to Columbia Journalism and then I worked at the New York Times. I think there's a lot of value to be found when you, when you grew up in a place and you understand rural people. Um, and, and by the way, um, it was, um, Jason Strange's book um, that you recommended to me a while back. Um, he hit that. Uh, it, it's a 
Shelter from the Machine. Um, it's a good book, and I really the thing that he hit um, was the back to the landers versus kind of the redneck rural culture. Um, I found I probably grew up in more of the latter where people look suspiciously of the former, um, you know, cause that was just, you know, it was just the, the world I grew up in. Um, but the perspective that you have growing up in like in the way that you have, it's just something you're not going to be able to Harvard degree or not. You're not going to be able to translate not well. You know, especially if you're trying to tell the story of, you know, middle America. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of in, in life and in stories. And I'm always looking for things. There are things that money can never buy. And that's what I find to be interesting. You know, like, I don't care if you went to Harvard, but there's people that you meet that their perspective or their upbringing or what they're doing is so refreshing or completely different or unknown to you. Mm -hmm. And um, I just feel like we should, that's where value is for me. I don't give a fuck if you went to Harvard. Speak. Okay. Let's talk about your dad and your Oxford American piece. He, all right. What's he doing? Just so everybody else knows. So my dad has, well, he's been talking about it for like, I can't remember if I, it's like 20 years annoying my mom, but he has always said he's going to build his own tomb uh, on our, on their property, my parents' property in Arkansas and as an art project as like his gra his last work of art. Like, are we, his... are we talking like a mausoleum or is this something underground? What are we, what are we, what are we talking about? Cause I saw something about a okay, so... in here and I wasn't, I was like, okay, where's this going? Well, there's two things. One is that my parents really like the pre-Columbian tradition of, of burying people, you know, people would, um, be buried with like all their objects, objects of art or handmade mm -hmm. tapestries. And so my parents, my dad specifically, cause he's the one who likes that idea of being buried with like all his pots and things that my mom made. And, um, but then they're in Arkansas and, and tornado shelters, you can get a uh, tax write off on. Yeah. So my mom, who's not excited about my dad's tomb said, okay, at least if you buy a tornado shelter, we can use it and then it can be your tomb later or something. Anyway, so that's kind of where my dad put a down payment on the tornado shelter when I was just home in uh, in September. And my mom was my mom's kind of like over this whole, th you know, so, project of my dad building his tomb. I have to ask which, uh -huh. which model did he get? Did he get the extra large one because he can have lots of space or what, what's... I don't know, but I think it was $5,000, which made my mom mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She's like, Aren't, don't, you, don't you have better things to be doing with your money during the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what price did we put on eternal peace? I don't know. I just... <laughs> uh -huh. So is he, what, so, so what's the plan for this thing? Is it just uh, as far as, is he going to, 
the 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 shelter is just like a, a raw form and he's going to turn it into something else or is that's just going to be it uh the shelter i think i mean i don't know if he knows but i basically the shelter is the raw form mm-hmm. and he wants to fill it with a, a lot of his work mm-hmm. uh and then be buried there when he dies he said he wants to be wrapped in one of my mom's textiles right so your mom's gonna make your dad a mummy is, is this is what i understand yeah a mummy bundle yeah <laughs> yeah and she feels great about this right she's not she's i think she has a lot of mixed feelings about it she's <laughs> kind of you know it's a lot of facing uh facing death during the pandemic uh, fair enough so is this something that she wants to also be buried in as well or no 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 nope. no she says she said i'm not hanging around to to take care of your tomb <laughs> well okay then it's you know these are where good stories come from though um you have interesting parents i'd like to meet them so i follow your dad's pottery page um but yeah i have a feeling you have life around your place or at least dinner conversations would be pretty interesting <laughs> Yeah, my parents are very eccentric and I mean I've I feel very um I mean so much of what I do is really influenced by the way that they raised me and mm-hmm. being surrounded by art and making things and and the you know the ideas and I love that as an adult I can talk about all these, you know, what what my parents are doing artistically and um you know, they're both you know, very interesting and only getting more eccentric. So how old are they now? 70. Okay. All right. My parents, um, it's not the same thing, but they went ahead and pre-planned their funeral and bought their gravestone. And I, I didn't know where it was. And so I went and found the cemetery and sure enough, there's their tombstone. Uh, and I found it funny that they, I guess they did it intentionally that they, you know, they're eternally going to be laying on the same side of the bed that they would normally sleep on. And so, and my dad keeps trying to get my mom to like pose for a picture, but, uh, you know, laying, you know, testing it out, but it's just not happening. It's not happening. Um, question going back to a little, uh, you have a PhD, so you could teach if you wanted to in college. Has that ever crossed your mind? Something you might want to do? Um, I, I like teaching, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, the hard thing about teaching is, you know, when you're teaching and you know this, I mean, I did, I taught at the university of Kentucky. I taught while I was doing my PhD, I had two, I taught two sections of Spanish or either language, literature, or culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had six, 60 students a semester. And when you're teaching, it's really, really hard to have any time to write right and so i like teaching but i want to have time to write so i guess it would be a matter of you know maybe maybe teaching you know one one class a semester or one class a year i don't know the hard part is just putting it all together like financially and time-wise it's like okay i have a full-time job teaching but i don't have any time to write right and uh i just decided 
I want to write and I'm going to, for as long as I can, I'm going to write. And when I run out of money, okay, I could teach now, or something like that. Are you planning on staying in Mexico? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I still, well, before the pandemic, I'm, I'm in the U S a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. the pandemic has changed a little bit, but you know, I'm, I come back and forth all the time. I kind of like having a, a buy and, you know, a binational existence. Mm -hmm. um, so. Does Arkansas feel like home still? It, Arkansas, I would, I would be more specific. I would say Oark. my, where my parents, Oark feels like home. It, where my parents are. Yeah, it does. But it's also hard for me to go back. I mean, there's a reason I've, you know, I haven't moved back and it's, Arkansas is, I find it hard to be there. It's, you know, it's pretty conservative. It's, you know, it's, uh, and especially about women and what women should be doing. And, you know, I should be married and have, you know, five kids by now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a rebel and I don't want to be around, <laughs> you know, I've kind of just kept, kept pushing the limits and, uh, and I'm not ready to, to like, I don't know if I'll ever be ready to return full time to Arkansas. <laughs> I get that. One of the things that I saw happen and it happened with me is you leave for a while and then you start to get nostalgic about what it was or at least what you think it was. And then you go back and, and I've had another conversation with a friend of mine who, uh, he, he built a house back here, uh, you know, it was this idea, I'm going to come back and I'm going to raise my kids where I was raised. And then he was like, oh, this isn't what I remember. Um, and then at that point, he was kind of committed because, you know, he'd spent a lot of money and he'd built a house and he'd, he'd done a lot of stuff. And he was like, but I, it, there's this idea that you've moved on personally and you, your own personal growth has taken you somewhere else and you see the world with bigger eyes and then you come back and then it's you realize a lot of folks don't. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I, I like hanging out at the farm. Um, I like hanging out, you know, go across the national forest and, you know, I'll play out there, but I don't usually go into town unless I just need to buy something. And then I just kind of go in and then leave. And that's, you know, I don't have any of those hangouts. So I get that. So, uh, last question. Are you still running? You were getting into running again last I saw. Yeah. Yeah. I actually ran six miles on Sunday, okay. um, which is a, a lot for me. Not a lot, but I've been, I, I started running during the pandemic and I was running like four miles a day and then five miles a day. And now I'm just adding six into the mix. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been, I mean, for my mental health, it's been really key. Because uh, otherwise, it's like you're alone. I'm alone. I'm writing. Uh, I'm worried about the world. I'm very full of anxiety and um, running. It just gives me an outlet. Do you listen to music when you run, or do you just face your own demons while you're out there? Uh, if I'm running alone, I'll listen to music. I run with my boyfriend um, too, and then if I'm running with him. Uh, I, I just run, just run. No music. Okay. Uh -huh. No, I I don't know where I, I stopped wearing headphones when I would run, and it was because 
I don't, I don't remember where I got this, but you know, you always, you hit that wall. And when somebody, that inner voice is telling you all the things that you can't be and all your things you're not, and you're worthless. Why don't you just quit? And I used to kind of cover that up with music. And now I'm just like, I kind of accept it as a challenge. And it's like, no, no, I'm going to hit another mile just, just to shove it up your ass and just <laughs> whatever it is. So, okay. I get that. I get that. So, well, yeah, you've got to, at this point in time, you've just got to stay busy. Um, keep, I have just decided if you've got to have a healthy mind and a healthy body, if you're going to just stay sane in this world right now, just, and just push yourself. So, yeah, I know. I think that's what we all, I mean, I think a lot of people are struggling with that right now. So is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to cover? You want to talk about? No, I, I think we covered a, a wide range of topics. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to, I appreciate you. Uh, if people want to follow you, uh, how can they find you? Uh, well, the only social media I'm using right now is Instagram mm -hmm. and it's, um, my Alice and then a double underscore and then driver, which is my first and last name. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much it. You have a website. <laughs> Oh, I have a website. Yeah, it's also under my name. Okay. So, all right. Um, well, Alice, I certainly appreciate it. And I hope you win a Pulitzer for your work because you're doing, you're doing the hard work right now. So I appreciate you. I just want you to know. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too. All right. Safe on the lifeboat when I jump back overboard. I swim past the rudder, the anchor, and some floaty toys. I got back on the ship, it was lilt to the left. I reached a compartment and grabbed the life vest. Looked around to see who I was going down. Band was still playing Superstition by Little Stevie. Yeah, the drinks were being served in the hall by the big screen TV. The gamblers were sitting drunk in their PJs, placing their bets and tipping the DJs. The bods and dirts kept serving, the ladies kept on dancing for tips. Didn't all seem to notice or care about the angle of the ship I said, hey, we're all going down But we can all make it out if we leave right now No one looked around, said anything Down to second class, they were gathering up all their gadgets. 
They had heard the alarms, they had tweeted, Facebook and blabbed it. They were charging their phones, uploading pics now, transferring them from the camera to the cloud. They knew what was up, but man, they were heavily distracted. I said, hey, we're all going down. Still make it out if we leave right now. No one looked around or said anything. Out down the third class, I found a little girl who was crying. I said it's gonna be okay. Just tell me who your parents are and we'll find them. The last time I checked, they were up to the next. Said to go on without them and climb the higher decks. Save yourself, they said, we don't even speak the language. Then they closed and locked the cabin door, saying no one but Jesus could save them. Said, hey, we're all going down. We might still make it out if we leave right now. So she looked around, she took my hand. Well, we made it to the top, but the lifeboats had already gone. Ain't that just like America to send them out with nobody on? Took her in my arms and I said, hold tight With a leap of faith we sailed into the night The taste of salt water filled up our noses and mouths Yeah, we turned around in time to see the big ship headed south All the USS America in all of her glory Headed straight down to the bottom of the sea floor. This captain, its crew, and sadly most of the passengers too. Just a few lifeboats hanging around. No one knew what to do. I said, Hey, we can all go down, but we can still survive if we start right now. Tied our boats together, we started a row. And when the sun was coming up, we discovered a brand new.